Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Get a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis And this is going to be so fantastic For those reading teachers educators, guidance counselors, parents, and students, you need to listen to this with Dr. George Cambuto and I will talk about fluency, vocabulary, word recognition, text comprehension, and there's a whole lot more coming along. <laughs> so good morning and welcome back to MJ Network. I've been looking forward to this forever. Thank you, friends. My pleasure to be here again. Well, I'm going to give you some definitions because you're the expert and you're going to help me According to hmm, the science of reading, this is their definition of fluency. Yeah. When students are able to read fluently, they could read with speed, accuracy, and expression. There are many ways to improve freaking fluency, and they are all easy to include in your instruction. That's one. Um, number two is I totally agree, disagree with most of this. Um, this whole class fluency drills. We're, we project these on the board, and the students are able to review previously learned skills in a spiral review. <laughs> fluency sentences and timed fluency drills. Yeah, okay. That, that, that's one. Okay, now, what is instruction method in teaching fluency? So how do educators teach it? Two major instructional approaches to fluency are assisted reading and repeated reading. In assisted reading, a developing reader t- t- listens to a text read to them. In a fluent manner, in simultaneously reads the same themselves. And there's a lot of gobbledygook here, seriously. So how, how do you teach? I mean, diff- children do have trouble with fluency, but sometimes I'm finding, and I know from watching other teachers teach reading, they teach them how to read fluently by speed reading but they don't understand anything. They don't focus on what the passage says or anything. So what's the right way to teach children how to read without going, uh, I'm not sure? Uh, Quite honestly, Fran, I think the best answer to your question is um, why. What I mean by that simply is why. Is is that what we really want? Do do, do we want uh, to to develop to to, um, uh, read Sentences, paragraphs, pages aloud, uh, and they sound good. They, they they move along nicely. Their voices go up. Their voices go down when mm-hmm. they should. Um, at the end of sentences, is that what we really want? And the answer has to be an unequivocal no. In fact, yeah. uh, you and I have talked before about Edmund Burke Huey and his classic psychology and pedagogy of reading, written mm-hmm. in 1890. Mm-hmm. I, even in that book, written in 1898, first published in 1903, Huey makes the point that oral reading, oral reading is a performance display, a performance display. If you're performing, and you know what? There's some really, really 
superb students who simply do not like to perform and hence don't sound very good when they do it. So I think we really have to rethink this. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, Fran, there are some definitions of fluency that actually include comprehension. Most of them do not. Most of them totally omit comprehension as if it's an aside or something like that. No, I agree with you. And there's another one writing here from this. I found somebody sent this to me. I don't know why. Ever since I've been doing stuff with reading, I get emails from other people telling me, would you like to download our information? So this time I did. It says, fluency is the ability to read like you speak. Hudson Lane and Pullman define fluency this way. Reading fluency is made up of at least three key component elements, accurate reading of connected texts at a conversational rate with appropriate prosody or expression. Non-fluent readers suffer in at least one of these aspects of reading. They make mis- many mistakes. They read slowly or they don't read with appropriate expression and phrasing. So what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in fact, you see, the problem with uh, definitions like that, and I have to yeah. hold my belly when you read them, because clearly whoever wrote, whoever uh, that, that uh, citation comes from has no clue in terms of uh, all the yeah. of the past 40 years of research and miscue analysis. Uh, even mm-hmm. the, even the word error, as soon as you hear the word error being used, you know that person is absolutely, I'm sorry, but absolutely ignorant of 40 years of research in his Q analysis. The kid that reads after you finish playing with your friends, he went and it says to his house, and the kid reads home. That's a good miscue or a, a good error. That's oxymoronic. So we would call it a good miscue because it maintains the, 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 the uh, author's intent. Now, why would the youngster do that? Because he or she is predicting, doing exactly what he or she did, should do. So mm-hmm. as soon as I see that word error, I know that whoever uh, uh, gave that definition has, is, I'm sorry, but it's totally ignorant to 30, 40 years of re- research in Ms. Kuhn No, I, I agree. And I know that according to some teachers that I've spoken to recently, I said, how do you teach children to you know to read fluently. Number one, do they know all the words? Number two, are they read slowly? Are they reading? Are you? So some of them just read sentences out loud. The print is not in front of them, and they tell them to just say the same thing. I said, so what's that going to do? They become like they're right, they're reciting a poem without a book, without the without the paper. I said, how, yeah. how do you do that? I said, what about if you just go through the sentence and let them you know understand what it is, read the sentence, tell them, ask them what they mean. Everything has a message. So they're just reading to sort of like throw back whatever they're saying. It means nothing. And I never yeah. taught reading, taught fluently. Right? As a matter of fact, I used to get annoyed when some of the teachers would say, you know, they read beautifully, but they don't read fast enough. I said, if they read any faster, they'd be skating out the door. They need yeah. to read it with, 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 with understanding. And I would say to the kids, it doesn't matter. And then, of course, they're forgetting the child that has a tracking problem, child that misses, you know, leaves out words in between because they don't see them. And then there's the, the child that just doesn't want to read out loud because the teacher's going to say you're not reading fast enough. Or, That's or, even worse. Or, the, or, or worse yet, the teacher's, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm going to use the word again, the teacher's ignorance of miscue analysis. Yeah. So when the other would make this demand to go accept all miscue, which should 
every researcher who has even a, a paucity of knowledge on this will let that, that mystery go by since it maintains the author's intended meaning. And this youngster will, of course, be corrected by that teacher who's not uh, aware of this. And as a result, that student will uh, internalize the idea that reading is not about getting meaning. Reading is all about getting every word correctly, uh, doing so in a fluent manner, letting your voice go up and down at, at the correct yeah. points, and absolutely ridiculous. In fact, what you're doing is you're teaching that student, he is interpreting, is internalizing the idea that reading is all about saying the words well, saying them quickly, and saying them with the correct prosody, which is ridiculous. Yeah, I know, exactly. And that's why I'm very proud to say I never did it that way. I had my own yeah. unique way of doing things. As a matter of fact, my principal used to walk in and go, like, what did you just do? I said, whatever I did, it's working. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It was the, the yeah. friend Lewis, whatever. So now let's get yeah. to a very important skill. Very few teachers teach children to understanding vocabulary and context. That's the next one on my paper. I've got this. Mm -hmm. And to get the meaning of an unknown word, use the context surrounding of the word. There are four types of context clues, synonyms, antonyms, general sense of the passage. And there's a whole bunch on this paper that I that I read. And it says, good readers use context clues to help them understand the meaning of an unfamiliar and challenging word. So often students are told to figure out what a word means based on the word portion surrounding context clues. But if they don't have the understanding of what a context clue is, then they can't do it. And that that's a fact. So you do, there are nine types of context clues in the paper that I found. Antonyms, comparison, example, explanation, cause and effect list, or series of clues. But how do you help a child understand that if they have trouble reading the word? Yeah, well, again, you're, we're, not you, but, but that statement, unfortunately, uh, uh, tends to um, obfuscate things a bit, Frank. We have to be careful to differentiate between, yeah. because you said the youngster can't read the word. Now, that's not vocabulary. That's decoding, okay? They're two yeah. totally different things. Vocabulary or receptive vocabulary is defined as a storehouse of words of which one knows the meaning, okay? Now, mm -hmm. decoding, on the other hand, is breaking the written code. So if the, if the word in print is uh, blasphemy and the youngster reads blasphemy, He's decoded it correctly. Now, my guess mm -hmm. is that if he's in second, third, fourth grade, he has no clue what that word means, uh, even with the context. The context may help him, but the point being that, that we, we have to be careful not to confuse decoding and um, vocabulary. I'm going to be more specific, receptive vocabulary, because as you well know, uh, we have two types of vocab. Uh, we have the uh, a receptive vocabulary, which is the storehouse of words, of which one knows the meaning. And then we have expressive vocab. Those are the words that we use, okay? So, but, mm -hmm. uh, again, we, we have to be careful not to, uh, not to confuse those two. Now, having said that, in terms of responding to your, your excellent point, if the youngster can't read the words on the page, if the youngster's having difficulty decoding, then, the, then there's no way he or she can use contextual analysis to figure out uh, the meaning of a, of a word that he, he or she may not know. Mm -hmm. There's no way. 
just like if you you were or I were to read a, a text in Braille and we couldn't read we couldn't figure out the words. Well, the 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 context is not going to help us because we can't break the code. So breaking the code becomes critically important. It's a uh, uh, sine qua non. It's that which that which can't be done without. Uh, it's not what it's all about, but Spiritech will. Uh, uh, Put the brakes on if uh, one is really having difficulty with that. I, in fact, when I had, for many years when I had my private office, parents would call up and say, yes, Dr. Jafuda, I've heard a lot about your center. Uh, my child reads beautifully. He just doesn't understand me when they read. Uh, I, 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 would, I would not get go because that's not a professional thing to do. But, but that's kind of an oxymoron. My son reads beautifully. He just doesn't understand what he reads. Uh, but I, I, I fully fully um, understand that, that uh, why parents will say that, because parents have come to learn because mm-hmm. of what teachers do and uh, what we teach in schools of education, that reading is all about sounding good, uh, saying the words correctly, and they forget that the C word, the, the comprehension. So to say he reads beautifully, mm-hmm. he doesn't understand things, is an is a inherent contra- contradiction. That, that is true, and then the other part that you said was morphology. Um, where am I think here? Morphological analysis yeah, and active yeah. and passive. So, I think. so it says yeah. semant- you have semantic maps. Select a word with word parts from the self-contained passage of a text. Establish the purpose of the strategy. I think by the time you do that, they're going to fall asleep. Write the selected word. Write the sentence from the passage of the text that contains the selected word. Divide the word into word parts. And brainstorm no words that contain the same word parts. Write them on the semantic map. Okay. Yeah. You know, we have, we have, a, um, uh, we have a marked uh, propensity, as it were, in uh, American, uh, I'm going to say American, uh, other countries as well. But American uh, literacy instruction, more specifically American reading instruction, we have this um, uh, marked uh, propensity, proclivity, as it were, to um, engage in, uh, uh, let's see, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, we tend to want to break down a process into its uh, component parts. Actually, the term is factor analysis. And if you look at a basal reading program, if you look at their mm-hmm. scope and sequence chart, that's a perfect example of factor analysis. And that's also a perfect example of 50 ways to make reading more difficult than it has to be. Uh, in fact, when you look at those, all of those things that are involved in a scope and sequence chart, it has to be incredibly intimidating to teachers when they look at them and all of those things not realizing that many of those things the youngsters already can do. Uh, but bottom line, friend, is uh, <laughs> in terms of factor analysis, uh, we, we can factor analysis any human activity. In fact, I really love to use the bicycle analogy when you see the parent uh, holding, the down, holding the bicycle or running down the street, and, mm. and then every once in a while they'll let go and the youngster will go on his own. Yeah? And um, <laughs> that that's that's kind of like the, um, uh, how shall I say, that's the uh, the typical way of uh, teaching bicycle riding. Now, now again, I have seen some parents uh, who have 
uh, fact, and analyzed uh, riding a bicycle. I saw this one parent. He uh, set up a uh, uh, balance beam in his backyard, and once young sugar would go back and forth uh, ten times without falling, he would just check that on his uh, rope and sequence chart. Then he would have the youngster lying his back and he would make believe pedaling, and once he could do that for three minutes, he would check that one off. And once he could do an eye visual, eye and visual motor coordination test on the computer, he would check that one off. I, I hope you're, you're 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 seeing that I'm being facetious here, but I know but, of course. <laughs> uh, parent who would do that, okay, and I, I I really haven't seen a parent do that, but if a parent who would do that was would find out very quickly that. The youngster can master every one of those skills, and you put him on that bike, you give him a push and let him go, and he's going to be on that crown. All those little uh, streamers coming off the bicycle are going to be broken, and the youngster is going to be looking up at you with that look on his face like, and, and, you, and you, you're and you a teacher, and you know how to teach this stuff? Because factor analysis just, uh, how shall I say, uh, simply, friend, the whole is oftentimes greater than the sum of its parts. Yes. Mhm. Yes. Uh, as a, my mother used to do that to me also. Uh, uh, check uh, off the list if you got those words right. They, the, and I would say to her, I think I can handle this by myself. The only way right. to learn is by hit and miss. My father would say that, but then yeah. she would say to me, "Well, did you read the whole? Did you read the book? What did you read?" And then I would, you know, tell it to her back from the front to the cover. She said, "How did you know that?" I said, "Because I guess maybe I was focusing on what the meaning was." And I always knew right. how to, you know, t- tell a new word. So I actually, when I was teaching reading to the children that were like far behind, and I would never, they would never knew they were far behind. They just, just knew they were there. And I would say, right. I'm not going to tell you the word. You're going to have to figure it out from the parts of the word. And I taught them root words and word roots and stuff. And you know what? Miracles happen because yeah. you just let, let them, yeah. Now, this, this is a topic that I've never heard of before. So I found some definitions, but... Locus of control. It says internal versus eternal, external locus of control. Theoretical construct of memory. Does is that part with the sensory store in the short-term memory? Because this definition is like, hmm, internal teacher locus of control refers to the degree to which teachers attribute the student of cause of student behavioral outcomes in, te- in learning teaching skills. Then there's another one. The locus of control is a 28-item force choice instrument. I don't think you meant that either. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. No, uh, so I, I, I have I, I have short-term memory and all that over here. Right, right. Well, th- those are related because of the obviously locus of control and the theoretical construct yeah. of memory are they work in tandem in terms of. Uh, how youngsters are processed uh, either written or spoken language. But in terms of mm-hmm. internal versus external control, uh, in my view, if I'm going to be uh, 18 different ones, I, I have no idea what they may be. But very simply, uh, an internal locus of control, uh, I find examples work the best. An internal locus of control mm-hmm. in any aspect of life, if, if uh, let me take one that just came to mind. It's, a, it's an excellent example. You see, I started skiing late in life. I was, oh, I guess, I don't know, in my late life. But in my 30s or 40s, my, my kids were skiing and uh, on school school trips. I thought, oh, what the heck, mm-hmm. my, I'm not going to try it. Well, I did try it. I was I'm not unathletic. I played, I played several sports in high school. But skiing just didn't come easily to me. But you know what, friend? 
it was the boots. Those boots, I couldn't get the the boots the right size, and and I finally ended up buying boots that actually blew up. You put the little job in it, and the mold and see it, and that didn't work. But you know what? Someone else told me, you know what? Sometimes if it's not the boots, you can really you can really not ski well if you um, if you don't have the correct poles. The poles are supposed to be the right length. You have to make sure and friend. Uh, I, I went to the first to actually buy a skiing outfit because I hate the cold. That actually uh, <laughs> uh, grabbed the soul, solar rays, okay? So you were heated all the time. Friend, what I was doing is I had developed an external locus of control when it came to skiing, meaning I blamed everything, everything on my lack of ability to ski on external. Yeah. Instead of saying, wait a minute, what am I doing wrong here? See? External local control is you blame it on something else. Now, to, to relate it to reading, the youngster who says, well, you know what? I, I, did you read that paper? Yeah. Can you tell me about it? No. How come? Uh, you know what? This is boring. This is boring. I'm trying to hear that, friend. Yeah? Oh, this sounds boring. You know, you know what, Dr. Pavito, I, I really could understand it, but this print is so small. You know, this print is so small. All of those things. But, oh, I just gave you two examples, but there are many. Anything that's outside of the youngster's control, we call external, okay? Anything that's within his control, we call internal. And typically, poor comprehenders typically uh, do not say, you know what? Did you understand that, that paragraph, Joey? No. Um, can you tell me why? Yeah, I, I think I didn't understand it because as I was reading it, I didn't continually monitor what I was reading. I didn't ask myself, does it make sense? Does it not make sense? And if it didn't make sense, I go back and I use one of those metacomprehension uh, fix-up strategies. Mm-hmm. I make little pictures with my hand. You never see them do that, Brad. That's because they haven't been taught those skills, you see? So what they do is they come up with something um, uh, externally, that they 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 uh, very easy to blame. The, the the most common one is, and it's insidious because they they blame themselves. Uh, they're it's lack of intelligence. It's I'm stupid. What can I tell you? That kind of thing. So internal versus second external control. They're not all that complicated, although they're psychological terms, so they have to make them a little bit complicated. No offense, psychologists, but. Uh, uh, they're not all that that difficult. Internal meaning it's something that you you're taking the blame with it, it, something uh, within you is, is causing it. External is something outside of you. Okay, and even though even though being stupid sounds like it's internal, it's really external because you if you you just don't have the intelligence, what was that you could do about it? You got lousy genes or something like that. Okay. So, uh, again, uh, I have found in my more than a few years of doing this that poor reading comprehenders oftentimes have an external locus of control. They blame everything else but themselves, just like I blamed everything else. I must have gone through 15 pairs of ski boots, and you know what? I still never made it past the blue, the blue uh, 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 trails. Uh, and uh, I might have nothing to do with the first time I, I ski, I, I crashed into a rock and uh, uh, got a rather significant injury. But, uh, again, that, that's, that's also a certain extent external. But, 
again, uh, internal versus external locus of control, critically important. And how do they relate to the the um, the uh, aspects of memory? Well, we are, in fact, how often do we teach youngsters how the memory system works? In fact, I think rarely, if, if ever, do we uh, do that. In fact, I was asked to do a talk in my one of my children's third grade class way back when. I said, honey, what, what do I want me to talk about? He said, anything, Dad. You know, you're, you're, you're stuck, you know. So I decided to talk about memory, the theoretical construct of memory. I didn't call it that. But I drew a picture of the brain, and and they were fascinated by it. And we talked about sensory store, when information first comes in, disappears very rapidly if we don't keep looking at it. If we keep looking at it or attending to it at the uh, auditory, then it goes into short-term memory. How much does short-term memory hold? Well, that thanks to George A. Miller, who wrote the classic article, The Magic Number 7 Plus or Minus 2. George A. Miller mm-hmm. found that most human beings can hold a minimum of five and a maximum of nine bits of information at any one time. And once you go past that, that uh, magic number seven plus or minus two, well, the information tends to poof, just, just disappear, go right out. Um, however, oftentimes, the two of us who, I'm going to go on such of in here, but the two of us who I, I believe are, are, are both uh, literate and uh, uh, incredibly uh, voracious readers, we love to read, uh, we don't... Um, we, uh, w- when we're reading, if we're not getting something, if we read a page and we didn't get it, we don't throw the book down and say, you know what, that was, that was boring. We'll, we'll kick in one of those strategies to help us get the information. And one of them, a beautiful one, is, especially if we're reading a novel, is imagery, making pictures in your head. In fact, what is it? Are pictures worth a thousand words, friend? Yeah? So, so by making that picture you're stopping short-term memory from being overloaded. In fact, oftentimes the poor mm-hmm. comprehenders are called poor comprehenders because on a, on a fairly regular basis, they keep leaving the sentences that they're reading for eight, nine words, and, uh, well, eight or nine definitely will pop right out. By the way, that's why phone numbers, you ever heard anybody say my phone number is uh, six three one two four seven? Uh, no. They never that. They say them in chunks. Six three one four two two oh six two six. Why? Because that's only three chunks. Short-term memory can easily process three chunks. Okay. So chunking is another wonderful way of overcoming limitations on short-term memory. And if things don't go into, I'm sorry. If we allow things to overcome short-term memory, they do never. They just don't get into long-term memory. So then we're in kind of deep, deep trouble. Uh, and, and long-term memory is obviously the repository for everything that we've ever learned, we truly learned. So it goes centuries for short-term memory, long-term memory. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, I, I even the third grade who I was teaching, and when I gave them examples that I did uh some, uh, when they do this on, on, on psychological tests, they, they call it digit memory span. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to say some numbers, Joe. We spread the back four, three, one, seven. And the youngster has to listen and say them back. And there are certain mm-hmm. uh, amounts of numbers that you should get at a certain age. Uh, the point being 
that the examiner isn't allowed to say 4137 <laughs> because that, that's what the youngster should be doing in his or her head. That's chunking, you see? And yeah. Young, some young, and, and, and interestingly enough, we don't teach that. Young, some youngsters just know how to do it, and other youngsters have no clue. So anyway, we're on a little bit of a diatribe, I'm sorry. But um, uh, again, I don't think uh, internal versus external local control are as difficult uh, uh, concepts as the uh, internal, you're blaming yourself. Externally, you're blaming anything but yourself. And as long as you maintain an external locus of control, it's never going to get fixed. That That's true. You know, it's funny. I had to read so many books when I was younger. And yet my mom had Alzheimer's. And I found huh? that it was really was for short-term memory and long-term memory. Her short-term mm-hmm. memory, she would forget what she ate five minutes before. She would look at me and go, did I eat? I go, of course not. I may just start. What do you want me to tell you? And she would crack mm-hmm. up laughing. The right. long-term right. memory, she would remind me of something I did a thousand years ago that she remembered that I chose to forget. And right. she she would say to me, you want to point? I hate trying on clothes, ever. And mm-hmm. I blamed it on the fact that I was overweight, and my mother used to pick out my clothes, like, you know, like external blaming on somebody else. And said, mm-hmm. I said to her, well, maybe if I go on a diet and lose weight, it won't help anyway. I said, so in that case, I'm not going to buy clothes anymore. I don't. I don't try <laughs> anything. I just go on Amazon and buy something because I'm, a, I'm 103 pounds, so it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> it really doesn't. So, yeah. I, and I find that kids, um, when, like you said, when they look at a passage and it's too hard for them, they automatically turn off and say it's too hard. Instead of yeah. saying, well, we'll take little pieces at a time. I don't think in all the years I taught reading that any children, child ever said to me, I can't do it. I wouldn't yeah. even hear that. I said, you can, but we're going to break it down so that you will do it the right way. And and right. for some reason, and they never had, they never looked at me and said, okay, Mrs. Lewis, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. Yes, you are. Because you can. Yeah. But then again, it depends on what you ask them to read. That's the other thing. Yeah. If you're asking them to read something that's that they're interested in, I don't mean a reader. That that stuff is whatever. That's canned. But if you say, what what would you like to read about? You want to read about sports? You want to read about wrestlers? You want to read about people, uh, rap singers? You want to read about this? Well, we could read about that, and we could talk about it. And then all of a sudden, they understand. Miracles. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I, again, I... I... I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, obviously, we human beings tend to uh, like mm-hmm. doing that which we're good at, okay? And similarly, we that's why I never liked skiing, by the way. <laughs> I would never, I never got got to the master level, and as a result, besides the fact that it's cold, it, you're up high, all things that I don't like. But in any case, uh, I agree with you 100%. When, when youngsters are reading that which they're interested, inherently interested in, they have one leg up on on the problem. The only problem, it, the only difficulty I see with with that that mm-hmm. point, friend, is that unfortunately, by the time students get into secondary school or even elementary yeah. school, for that, uh, rarely does the teacher say to them, uh, "By the way, we're going to do social studies today. What would you like to learn about?" Uh, yeah, they, they they don't have that much of a choice sometimes. Now they 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 should have a choice in terms of their recreational reading, but oftentimes they have to follow the, the school curriculum, and so I guess my 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 uh, point would be that, pardon me, that uh, 
a really proficient reader is able to read reasonably well that which he or she has limited background uh, yeah. about. Yeah? Uh, b- because, again, if he has tremendous schema vis-a-vis that particular area, well, then the, the comprehension is, of course, going to be easier. Uh, needless to say, we don't want to intentionally give children books that we know we're going to turn them off. That, that's what they're unsure. And your point is a good one. Let, let, let's feed into uh, uh, whatever it is that uh, they uh, they enjoy, whatever it is they're interested in. But sometimes they just have to, I, I don't know, too many people who are, uh, I don't know, who are uh, burning and getting very excited about doing earth science. Uh, but some people are, I guess. But uh, I knew that earth science for me was like uh, getting a, a tooth pulled. Uh, oh, I love much, it. Much like, there you go. There you go. So, so much of life is, is idiosyncratic, right, Brian? Uh, one, yeah. one man's meat is another man's poison, or, or stated more correctly, uh, one one man's flesh, woman's meat is another man's woman's, uh, poison. Yeah, and and that's why learning is so so fascinating. But there's no doubt about it. What we have to do, I think, is um, I'm not kind of positive about this. We have to teach readers how to strategically. Involve themselves with the, the word transact, transact with print that they don't find uh, inherently interesting. Uh, text that they find inherently interesting, they, they're going to be able to process that without much difficulty at all. But to, to process print that they find, let's call it neutral <laughs> and not boring, okay? But to find, to read text that they don't, they're not particularly finding titillating, uh, it's going to be more of a challenge. Um, but, but again, those that the, the theoretical construct of memory, in my view, is incredibly, incredibly important. In fact, in my undergraduate class, I'm teaching now, uh, uh, starting mm. in September, and uh, one of the young ladies uh, on the in- intake form there, there's a couple of open-ended questions at the end, and she says, by the way, Professor, uh, I, I just so you know, I, I find I have some difficulty in reading comprehension. I'm hoping that during your office hours I can meet with you to discuss this. Blah, 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 blah. And so, of course, we, we did. And it turns out she's a, she's a passive reader. And that didn't take me long to find out. In fact, when I asked her when she reads uh, for fun, I really don't read that much by okay. But when you do, I said, do you, do you see the characters? She said, what? I said, do you see oh, the characters? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, do you see what they look like? Never. Uh, well, there you go. That, that, that's one thing. So we, but so she has to be taught how to visualize, right? And so, so readers like you or, or myself, we find that it's harmful. It's right? No, that's my phone. I'm gonna. I just disconnected them. <laughs> no problem. No problem. But yeah, I, no. I guess things that we take for granted. I think that I think that's the, that's one of the problems with reading is that oftentimes parents who are well, well let's assume that on on occasion many parents are mm-hmm. are good readers in the truest sense of the word. They just assume that the youngsters are doing those things that they do, and that that's a that's a flawed assumption. That's a flawed. Now, could that be true? Yes. But if the youngster, as I said, if I, if I hear one more, one more parent saying, well, he's lazy, he's just lazy, he's just, uh, you know, 
it's really not fun to uh, to read something and finish the page and feel like you haven't read it all. Uh, that, 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 that's not a funny fun experience. In fact, uh, the lazy becomes a uh, uh, really uh, uh, unfortunate uh, use of the word. Uh, but again, we come up with all kinds of fun things like he has uh, Cap D. He's got alternative screen problem. He's got ADD, ADHD. He's on mm-hmm. the spectrum. So come up with a, a thousand vaguely defined things. I'd, I'd much rather deal with things that are not vaguely defined. I'd much rather teach youngsters than a comprehension strategy. By the way, when you mentioned morphology before, Frank, you and I both know morphology is is using prefixes, suffixes, uh, addresses, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to uh, help with the meaning of a word. Once you learn uh, that uh, soul, S-O-L, means sun, it also means alone, well, then you've not only unlocked solar and solitary, but you've also unlocked a hundred other words that have the same morphology. That's why I'm, I'm a huge proponent of teaching mor- morphological analysis, starting probably in third grade. Do you know when we start teaching uh, morphological analysis to our American schools, friends? When they prepare for the SAT. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and exactly. And that's, that's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. Instead, if from K through, I'm sorry, third grade through 11, we give them, or let uh, be more generous, from third grade through 9 or through 8, we give them 20 vocabularies a word per week. There's a test from those uh, vocabulary words on Friday, and uh, then they get a, a quiz on it, and those 20 vocabulary words then go into the uh, the other sphere. I don't know. Uh, but they are own those words. But you teach a, uh, give me a fish and ace for a day, teach me a fish and ace for a lifetime. When you teach a youngster a, a prefix and a suffix that are root or, and or a root, you are helping them unlock literally thousands of words. That's why mm-hmm. I think morphological analysis is critically important. And that, that's something we can do direct instruction on the board. You can actually make it fun. Uh, but, but it's companion piece. Contact, contextual analysis, which you, you were talking about before, is, is oh, so, so incredibly important. Well, what, what if the sentence doesn't help? Uh, okay. Well, what if the sentence doesn't help? Okay. Should you whip out your Funkin' Wagnalls dictionary? I, I think not. I think you should just skip it and keep going. Uh, and hope that, by the way, are you going to run up to the teacher or, or the parent every time you come to a word you don't know? No. By the way, could you make a note of that word if you're so inclined? Of course you could. But um, in my view, fluent readers, the research is very clear. I, I shouldn't say fluent readers. Uh, competent readers, usually, when it comes to a word they don't know, they use the context to try to get it. If that doesn't work, they simply skip it. And sometimes, you know, English is, is interesting, friend. English is processed uh, uh, left to right, as you well know. Uh, but believe it or not, we process meaning in English right to left because of the, uh, the centrality mm-hmm. of the verb. So oftentimes we have to go past the sentence to get what the unknown word means. Mm-hmm. Uh, contextual analysis, morphological analysis, two things that could be a part of every, every uh, classroom um, Pedagogy, and uh, I just don't see it being that uh, enough at all. Well, I was lucky because I had fifth graders that were really tough, seriously. Yeah. And 
they, but they love to read. They love to come down to reading. As a matter of fact, when they got in trouble with their teacher upstairs, they used to sneak down and tell it was too bad. I'm coming anyway. <laughs> I cracked yeah. up laughing. But you know what? I did contact some clues, but they didn't. I said, you're becoming word hunters. We're going to unlock yeah. the words that we don't know, but we're going to take the word root, and we're going to talk about what it means, and then I'm going to explain to you. I wouldn't do both prefixes and suffixes, but I did prefixes. I said, and let's see if we can figure out some more words. I wrote the paragraphs myself. I made them up myself. Yeah. And then I yeah. would take what they wanted to read, and I would say, okay, my word hunters, let's see how many we can unlock and understand. But after you read the word, you have to read the sentence and tell me what you think it means. And, you know, and they, they surprised me. They never said, we don't know. There was no such thing as I can't do it. I said, yes, you can, because I told you you can. And yeah. it, was, it was amazing because if you really, 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 it depends on the teacher. It depends on, like, when I took earth science, I loved every minute of it. But the teacher was unique. The biology teacher, I wanted it, you know, I needed a couple of, couple of cups of coffee to stay awake. But uh-huh. the he took us to Wave Hill. He took us outside. We learned the, the form rec formation. So it was more interesting because it was like more hands-on, even though he wasn't supposed to do it, we never told. It was it was right. fun. Right. And, and, well, and, and yet the biology teacher wrote the, the MSCO uh, handbook. And uh-huh. that's like he wrote that. And all he did was put the handbook on the uh, video thing and on the screen. And he would say, next, next, next. I, I just leave that we had to take, take a snooze pill. Forget it. Yeah. So the other two yeah. things we have time for are very, sure. very important, which is um, it's up to you. Do you want to do metacognition and metacomprehension, or do you want to do content area strategies, KWL, semantic mapping, et cetera? Um, we, we, we already touched a little bit on metacomprehension, metacognitive strategies. Um, yeah. How about a, a five-minute quickie, and then we'll move to the other? If we have... Yeah, we have time for KWL and semantic mapping. KWL, my students found a lot of fun. Yeah. Because if you're teaching social studies or science or anything, and of course I, you know, I would used to make up my own stories and drive them crazy. It was fun. And it would always be on something that I felt in a content area that they needed. So I said, I don't want to put you to sleep because if I put you to sleep, I'm going to put me to sleep, but I don't want to be here either. So if it was an area in science or social studies or history or even a book, like the book I got in trouble with, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which I wasn't supposed to do, but what the heck. I said, well, what do you know about this area? What do you know about um, people that are different? What do you know about anything? And they would write with, I said, write two sentences. Okay, now if you, we, we'll look at the back cover. What, what do you want to know? And I, that turns them on all together. And then at the end, after they read it, well, did you learn what you wanted to learn? Or is there something still that's missing? And you right. could do it with social studies, science. You could do it with a reader, the boring yeah. stories. You know what yeah. I hate the most is that when they take a novel or a nursery, um, a Grimm's fairy tale, and they rewrite it in a in a in a reader, and then oh God, you just killed the whole deal. It's you got to read the original, or what's the point? So how what right. else can you do with KWL? And then semantic mapping does help a lot too, especially in yes. social studies, science, or anything like that. Yeah, well uh, that that that's why, as you you, you said as an introductory to this uh, this part of our talk this morning, friend, 
you did mention their content area strategy, which which, mm-hmm. which implies that their best use with um, uh, their best use with uh, uh, content area text, expository text, as mm-hmm. opposed to narrative text. In fact, I've seen teachers use um, KWL semantic mapping webbing with with novels. So it, it can work, but in, in my view, it's probably more uh, efficient, efficacious with uh, with content area uh, text. Mm-hmm. Um, that, what I the beauty of KWL is the first step in KWL is as you correctly, of course, pointed out. Um, you find out, ask your class, okay, we're going to be reading about uh, glaciers. The title of this chapter is uh, Glaciers in Long Island. Okay? Uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell me anything you know about glaciers? And look, one by one, they put their hands up, and you're going to make a K, a K column, a W, and an L column. And then, well, then it's okay, and you write it on the board. By the way, I like to write their name down next to it. This way I know who, who said it, okay? All right, Karen said they're, they're, they're okay? Uh, so they're really big, okay? They're really big. Uh, they actually, glaciers formed a lot of the lakes on Long Island, okay? And, I put, and every time they tell me something, I, I write it down, and I put their name down. And then what I find, friend, is, by the way, you could no reason why you can't donate as a teacher. Oh, by the way, I have one. Uh, I I'm pretty sure when, when glaciers uh, move along, when they they break off and they they move across land, they drop mm-hmm. pieces of sediment, okay, that they picked up along the way. I'm not sure what that was, but I'm pretty sure that that that's what what happened. Now, what is that happened with KWL? And I found this in so many cases. I, especially when I was doing demonstration lessons in the school district, is after the K part, you say, okay, boys and girls. Now, look at all we know about about glaciers and how they help to form Long Island, okay? Um, now, what is it that you would like to know about glaciers that we don't already know? And, friend, this is the part that I, 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 I'm almost laughing because it happens, like, all the time. This is where the, it could easily fall apart because I have yet to do a lesson where all of the hands go up. Rarely, at that point, usually what happens is nobody's hand goes up. And so that's okay. You can say, okay, well, you know what? You can say, Joan. Joan told us that glaciers are big. How big are they, Joan? Now, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. The, uh, I, maybe like 100 feet. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Frank? No, they're much bigger than that. How big do you think they're? Oh, they're probably like a mile long. Okay. No, I don't know. Guess what? That's something we want to know. So what you're doing then is you're, you're taking their their own knowledge, mm-hmm. that which they knew, and you're turning them into what would be called purpose-setting questions. Yeah? And mm-hmm. that, 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 uh, that makes KWL particularly, uh, uh, I, I think, enjoyable. And it takes that whole, well, what would you like to know? Uh, uh, kind of nebulous uh, aspect of it away, and 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 what, what do what, what, what do we call all the, all the stuff that, that the uh, that the glaciers pick up as they they move along? And and uh, uh, by the way, um, how big do they have to be before they break off? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, KWL marvelous. Semantic mapping starts almost the same way. Semantic mapping starts with brainstorming. You could put mm-hmm. on the on the on the board, the heart. Tell me anything you want to know about the heart because they're going to be studying 
the human circulation system, okay? And anything you want. And their veins, artery, and someone says, someone says uh, uh, I don't know, someone says, uh, blood thinners, and, and the class, no, 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 anything for someone to, and you just, you, this is brainstorming at its best, in my opinion. Everything is on the board, and if you put a lot on the board, that's wonderful, because then you can put them in groups and have them categorized, the ones that go together, mm-hmm. put them in groups. And then, if you're really experienced at this, they say, okay, boys and girls, now what we're going to do is we're going to take the group that you put them in, and now we're going to include another part of the language arts, writing. Let's see if we can write an essay using each of those groups as each group becomes a paragraph. So now you're taking the uh, that aspect of semantic mapping slash webbing, and you're using mm-hmm. it as a pre, pre-writing technique. Yeah? So... Uh, wonderful. And, and lastly, I know I'm talking fast, but I, I wanted to at least give each one a little quickie. SQ3R, survey, yes. question, read, 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 recite. Uh, that was that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 uh, I really think SQ3R is a wonderful technique. It's great for science and social studies. But let's just mm-hmm. say, uh, I, I'll give you if I... I if I may, I walked into a class. I was supposed to give a demonstration lesson for social studies teacher for how to teach uh, reading in the content area. So I, I told them that I was going to do uh, uh, a content area technique. I walked in. Everybody, it was a 10th grade class. So they weren't that easy. And, and uh, uh, so finally I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And they quieted down once you yell like that. I said, hey, hey, I will, if you quiet down, I'm going to show you how to cheat on his test. Now, that, that quieted them down, okay? Oh, of course. Then I, proceeded, then, I, then I proceeded to show them how to take the boldface headings. The first one was the first constitutional convention. I said, okay, let's turn that one into questions. And then I wrote who, what, where, when, why, okay? Who was that? What was the first constitutional convention? Where was the first constitutional convention? Who attended the first constitutional convention? Uh, why was there a first constitutional and then we read all those on the board. Now we're going to read, oh, no, 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 get nervous. You don't have to read the whole chapter. All you have to do is read the three paragraphs underneath that boldface heading to see uh-huh. if you can answer the questions we just formulated. Ah, and then they do, I'm walking around the room and they're doing it. And some go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think you're going to teach us how to cheat. I am, I am going to finish the questions first. And after you got them all, and then we go through them, I say, okay. Now look at that. You told me in Philadelphia. How many? All the colonies accepted except, except for two of them. Uh, the purposes to draft the Articles of Confederation. Blah, blah, blah. And we. I like, what, what, what about the cheating, ladies and gentlemen? How do you think he makes up his test? How do you think he makes up the short answer to questions for his test? There's nothing more you can answer. Who, what, where, <laughs> when, why? And that, and they're looking at me, and, and she's looking at me with her hands like. Kabuti giving away the keys to the kingdom here, you know. But uh, that that's that's the, the questioning part of SQPR, Frank. There are several others which I obviously can't cover in, in the short amount of time we have left. But SQPR is a marvelous technique. And the last part, R, is where you recite. You recite out loud that which you learned. And I kind mm-hmm. of did that before with the uh, the Constitutional Convention. Uh it's a it's a wonderful wonderful thing and it's so so teachable 
and when the students get the hang of it, which takes no more than one class period, but then they need to go do it over and over again. Marvelous technique in my view. It is. I th- the funniest thing when you said heart, <laughs> um, I wanted them to learn the positive heart. So we talked about the heart, whatever, and one of the boys in my class decided that he was going to, it was an IGC class, the third year I yeah. taught, and they decided they were going to get even with me to see if I really knew the parts of a heart. So they brought in a uh-huh. chicken heart. Yeah, well, they did to, for me to dissect. Yeah. And the right. chicken heart is not that different from a human heart. It's just very small. And right. I, I, I was sort of ready for them, and I had the pictures and everything. And they even brought me dissecting tools. I was uh-huh. like, you really, I, I, I said, oh, my God, we're going to really see if, if you're really that smart. I said, and if I am, guess what? Wait till you see what I do next. I was hilarious. It was hilarious. The only problem is, is that the kid that brought the tools walked away. He couldn't stand the inside of the heart. He got nauseous. <laughs> I was like cracked up laughing. But what I did, I did dissect it, and I was impressed with myself. And then I did exactly right. what you did. Well, what did you learn? What did you see? What do you want to learn? What else do you right. want to learn about a chicken? And what about your own heart? What about right. if somebody says to you, you don't have a heart? What would you say yes. then? You know, there are a lot exactly. of people that don't have hearts. What can I say? So exactly. we have a cu- exactly. couple of more seconds. And uh, what would you like to do next time? Uh, we, 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 didn't, we, didn't, we got into comprehension. But reasons for breakdowns in reading comprehension, I have some of it. Explicit versus implicit conversation, instructional intervention. I don't think enough teachers know how to teach comprehension. No, I, I, I think. Right. And the only, the only way to be honest with you, the only way to teach it well is to know why it's breaking down. Because yeah. once you figure out what's breaking down, that tells you what kind of intervention is needed. So that might be a good place to start next week. Yeah. Okay, let me do this. We're talking about the reasons for the breakdowns in reading comprehension. Some of the reasons are explicit. If the youngster can't read the words, obviously that's explicit, right? We know he's that's not right. going to understand because he can't read the words. However, what if he can read the words? Okay. Maybe he can't read them automatically. Well, that'll hurt his comprehension, okay? Uh, but what if he reads them well and automatically? You know, we can't blame that. Then we have to look elsewhere. This is, this, this is the kind of um, a reading assessment I think that should be should be done and should be able to be done by every classroom teacher. And uh, it probably will take us a, a good session next week too to get to these. Okay, I have a date. So let me see what I got here because I'm losing my mind completely. I'm very popular. Before I forget, Monday, there's talk, the author of Girl on Child, we're going to talk about substance abuse in children and teens. Oh, on the 8th, one of my favorite people, criminal defense attorney Philip Margolin will be here with Betrayal. And we're going to talk about MMA box uh, fighters. On the 9th, Deadly Ties. And on the uh, 15th, Medusa Murders, based on Medusa. I'm learning a whole lot, trust me, an awful lot <laughs> that I thought I'd never learn. So I have, and of course, um, and of course, you're learning an awful lot because you research the heck out of your topics. You're unbelievable with your research. I uh, this is true, and I just canceled something on December seventh. Does that work for you, or do you want me to push it to January? Up to you. Uh, let me see. For January, I have um, the third, or the tenth, or the yeah, third or the tenth, or the twenty fourth. 
Um, about uh, January. What? What? January ten. What day of the week is that? Wednesday. That sounds fine. Okay, let me put that in there because I have a psychotherapist on the eleventh. Okay. And we're going to talk about teenagers stressing and um, difficulties getting along and stress stress analysis and anxiety. We're going to talk about it. I'm learning a lot. Very, very, very important topic. Very important topic. Well, this has been great. And send me the talking points so I don't forget. And I'll look up whatever you tell me, whatever I have to do, because that's more fun. And thank you so much. Stay well, please. Everyone. Thank you. My pleasure, friend. Nice, nice to talk with you this morning. Everyone, have a great day, and bye.